This week on the show, Paul Raichi captures mounted border patrol aggressively confronting Haitian migrants. Magnum's Jonas Bendixson fools everyone but Duck Rabbit blog on Twitter. Instagram puts a temporary pause on their Instagram for Kids product. And the New York Public Library's image collection will continue to be available in person. Vision Slightly Blurred starts now. Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Sarah Jacobs. And I'm Alan Murabayashi. Alan, Haiti has suffered tremendous political unrest following the assassination of their prime minister back in July. And then, of course, the earthquake and the tropical storm that occurred in August, which we covered on the show and the photographs coming out of that. Thousands of refugees have tried to enter the U.S. from Mexico near the border of the city of Del Rio, Texas. Um, And there is an encampment on the U.S. side and immigrants are going back and forth into Mexico to get food and water. In response, the Texas Department of Public Safety set up vehicles to dissuade this activity. And then last week, U.S. Border Patrol showed up on horses and tried to stop migrants from bringing food back into the U.S. Video and photos emerged, but it was Paul Raichi's images that got the most attention because his images make it appear like a Border Patrol agent on a horse was whipping a migrant carrying food in foam containers and plastic bags. Now, Raichi was interviewed uh, by NBC's local news station in El Paso, and he did clarify that they were not whipping people. He said, quote, I've never seen them whip anyone. He was swinging it, but it can be misconstrued when you're looking at the picture. Paul is a freelance photographer and actually a photo shelter member, Although Paul says, you know, that people weren't being whipped, video footage published by Al Jazeera gives a more accurate depiction of what is happening. And honestly, I mean, it's still extremely unsettling. I, I think this is, a, is an interesting example where video, although you, you might have the same outcome of feeling by seeing the photos and the video, the video is more accurate in terms of what actually happened at the site. Yeah, people were really outraged by the perception of what they saw in Paul's photos. Um, And once again, Paul was observing this from a hill. Uh, He was in a position, according to the interviews that he did, uh, where no other photographers were, were present. And he said that he did not see any of the migrants being whipped by Border Patrol, but he did see a migrant that was almost trampled by the horse. So on the one hand, it's a horrific scene with these migrants that are just trying to survive after their country has been destroyed in politically and uh, through uh, environmental disasters. And they, they literally look like, you know, me coming back from getting takeout. <laughs> there are foam <laughs> containers in these plastic bags. It looks like the average delivery guy in New York City, right? And mm. but but you see them surrounded by uh, border patrol and these horses. Um, turns out that horses are used frequently on the border because of terrain concerns. Um, but the Department of Homeland Security, after this sort of outrage because of the photo and video coverage, uh, has disallowed horses from being used at this particular location. Uh, like you said, it's kind of the problem with still images. Mm-hmm. You know, the still image only captures a fraction of a second. And there's a lot of interpretation of like what went around that image. Um, and I would say with, with 
with Paul's image is they're they're very evocative of something terrible. And I think a lot of people kind of harken back to uh, slavery images where the white white taskmaster on the horse is whipping the slave. But it's not actually a photo of a whipping. It's still a terrible, terrible, heartless scene, in my opinion. But it's not what a lot of people thought it was. I guess it's sort of par for the course in the you know, fake news era. Not that the news is presenting it as, as, you know, intentionally presenting it as fake. And Paul obviously came out and said, this is not what happened in terms of the whipping. But boy, people will go anywhere to sort of uh, drink from the the fire hose that, that aligns with their beliefs. Yeah, I'm looking at his, he posted the photo onto his Instagram as well. And he wrote a, a fairly lengthy caption to it. But he doesn't specify the the migrant person is not being whipped, but he is still being physically assaulted by the guy on the horse by border patrol. So I guess it doesn't (laughs) at that point. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, speaking of kind of misinterpretation and fake news, uh, we came across an interview of the Magnum photographer, Jonas Bendixson, who relatively recently published a book called the book of Velez with fake photos, maybe more accurately described as composited photos, he photographed background plates from Velez, which is a northern Macedonian city named after a mischievous Loki-like god named Velez, if you're into uh, Marvel comics or the, uh, the Marvel TV series. Well, it turns out that in the early 20th century, a Russian army officer allegedly came across a series of mysterious tablets which were later deciphered by a Russian scientist, but now the whole thing is considered to be fake. Hmm. So the whole background of the legend of Velez, or at least in, in terms of these tablets, is fake. Well, Jonas was thinking a lot about this stuff and fake news, and he started to ask uh, himself this question of, how long will it take before we start seeing, quote, documentary photojournalism that has no other basis in reality than the photographer's fantasy and a powerful computer graphics card. Will we be able to tell the difference? How hard is it to do? How skilled will our own community of photographers and editors be in sniffing out what are deep fakes and what is real? He says, quote, I was so frightened by what the answers would be that I decided to try to do this myself. So he came up with this conceptual book, background plates shot in Northern Macedonia, He learned how to create uh, CGI-based characters that he composited into uh, these background plates with varying results. But everyone's initial reaction was like, oh, these are great photos. Nobody thought it was fake initially. Hmm. He subsequently set up a a series of fake social media accounts, uh, one by the name of Chloe Miskin, to call out the work as fake. So he was calling himself out as fake using these various guises, and no one did anything. (laughs) Then he submitted the work to the very well-known Visa Pour Limage, which is a big photojournalism festival, uh, and was offered an evening presentation slot. Now, we've talked a lot about Benjamin Chesterton, who runs the Duck Rabbit uh, blog and Twitter account. And he uh, ended up spotting these as fakes and tweeted about this project 
not necessarily impugning Jonas for trying it because he says, you know, Jonas did this as a conceptual idea. But he really gives uh, Jean-Francois Leroy, who's the uh, director of the Visa pour la Manche uh, and the festival itself, a lot of crap for not being able to tell the difference between a, a conceptual piece and photojournalism, um, in part because he's been very critical about the festival's support of sous vide data in the past. And you might recall that data plagiarized elements of a Mary Ellen Mark photo that went undetected for a very long time until a social worker reached out to Petapixel to complain about Dada's work after she read Duck Rabbit's criticism about lens culture on Petapixel. And I would say that the reaction amongst the photojournalism crowd um, that I saw, you know, in the past week, mixed. A lot of people feel very conflicted. Um, you know, some of them say this is a very cool project that shows the fallibility of the industry and that there need to be better controls. And at the same time, they're also saying this is a very ethically fraught <laughs> concept. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it was intended to show problems, you fooled a lot of people. Reuters photographer Lucas Jackson, who we've talked about a lot uh, in the past because of his coverage uh, of COVID, especially his Heart Island uh, burial photos, he tweeted, quote, Jonas basically leveraged the trust in history he has built up over time and stress tested it. The assaults of fake news are constant and the history ethics of journalists are usually weighed against those calls in the industry. He went further to say, in fact, it's almost always non-industry folks catching these things. The Iraq images in the LA Times, the Syrian images by AP Images, the copied smoke in Reuters images, those were all caught by non-industry people. It's it's just a really bizarre situation. Once Stuck Rabbit sort of identified these as being fakes, and Jonas published this interview on the Magnum blog, when you look at the images, they they all of a sudden look obviously fake, right? Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, you're like that that lighting looks weird. Mm-hmm. Or or even just the shape of that person's face kind of reminds me of a video game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I so wish that I had seen these photos, you know, prior to reading the entire interview, revealing exactly. all the information behind the project, because I think, and yeah, I guess now the cat's out of the bag for all of our listeners as well, so sorry. <laughs> well, the funny thing is Benjamin, you know, caught wind of it in part because the avatar for one of these fake social media profiles was one of the people in the images. Oh, so mm -hmm. he recognized, I guess he has really good facial recall skills because he recognized, yeah. you know, this tiny little avatar as being one of the people in the images, not something that I would have ever caught. Yeah, um, totally. Wow. But cool that he identified it. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, about the ethics of this project, which is such a deep topic that we could explore. I do wonder, like, did Jonas, you know, consult with any, like, ethics professionals around deciding to do this and especially for Magnum to publish the book or to publish the work um, by with fooling people, you know, before the truth was out. Jonas mentions that he was very careful not to do any media press around this body of work, right. that he only wanted it to live 
on social media for photographers and for the industry to kind of evaluate and just see for themselves and see if anybody caught that it was quote unquote fake. As a point of clarification, Magnum wasn't the publisher of the book, but they did publish this interview and they are selling the book on their website. Okay. It kind of crosses this weird line because, you know, I've seen discussions before in photojournalist forums where somebody says, you know, I photographed this politician and now they've reached out to me to, they want to license these images or they want me to come, you know, shoot PR images for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the reaction for the seasoned photojournalist is saying, you know, once you do that, you can't, you can't credibly cover politics anymore once you've been paid by a politician to photograph them in that certain light. And I think the same is true. Like if you're a photojournalist and you, you start shooting commercial work, then you can't really be covering Coca-Cola in a news story if you've been hired by Coca-Cola to shoot an ad or provide mm-hmm. PR images, mm-hmm. right? I had that same sort of weird sensation seeing this stuff on Magnum because Magnum purports to be this, you know, uh, storied photojournalism cooperative that, you know, back in the day, everyone aspired to be part of Magnum. And they've had all of this controversy uh, recently with David Allen Harvey and sexual harassment and photos Mm -hmm. of uh, child abuse and child pornography, uh, you know, out on their site. It, it's strange to me that they keep kind of pushing the envelope of what I think a lot of people will consider kind of ethically correct. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like from an ethics perspective, this is really complex. And I'm glad that we're having the, this conversation because Jonas published this work w- with you know, artistic and good intent, whereas someone could have published similar work with very negative intent. So it's good we're having the conversation because of that, Um, although very complex. But yeah, the marketing strategy behind Magnum, who you're right, is kind of facing this very, like... um, difficult time because people are scrutinizing Magnum as they should and the choices that they've made in the past. Yeah. Why publicize (laughs) this? (laughs) It's a great, it's a great question. Well, I think one of the rhetorical questions that Jonas is is asking is, so what is the industry going to do to prevent this from happening again? And Lucas brought this up in some of his tweets as well. Uh, I will say in 2006, after Adnan Hodges doctored Beirut photos were identified, Reuters kind of put their heads down and then came out with some policy changes. They announced back in 2006, uh, the agency has tightened editing procedures to ensure that only senior photo editors uh, deal with sensitive images. Uh, They're investing in more training and supervision and strengthen their code of conduct for photographers. Then in 2015, they also announced that they would only accept out-of-camera JPEGs from freelance photographers Mm -hmm. as opposed to process JPEGs from RAWs. Because they wanted to have some sort of control over, like what what was what was happening in camera, and, uh, as opposed to what wasn't. So, if you're a staffer, right. they weren't giving that level of scrutiny. If you're a freelancer, they didn't really know who you were, or maybe they did, but they were kind of unclear as to, you know, the provenance of the images or how truthful you would be, or whether you really understood the ethics that they were trying to uh, adhere to. Uh, so they made that change in 2015. I know that a number of the wire services have also incorporated um, automated detection uh, based on JPEG artifacts, et cetera. You know, we've talked about some of the automated AI-based, machine learning-based solutions for finding fakes. Um, 
but you know, I think I think in this case we're sort of running into human limitations in that we're inundated by images on a daily basis. The media is trying to get this imagery out and video out very, very quickly without enough scrutiny because they're trying to beat the press cycle. Consumers mm-hmm. are sharing it without scrutiny mm-hmm. because they don't know any better and because the algorithms are designed for viral spread. And confirmation bias sometimes leads us to be really uncritical about the, the, you know, the sharing that we're doing. Would you have any interest in buying this book like for the ethical questions that it does bring up? Uh, I think I got enough out of the interview that I don't need to <laughs> buy the book. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, yeah, listen, he... I think it's a cool project, but I do think that it is not without opening, you know, he, he opens himself up to criticism for stress testing, you know, his words, stress testing the system without really letting anyone know that he was doing this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, a, in a way, it's sort of like a, a hacker who hacks into a corporate system and after he's caught or, you know, he comes, he comes out later and says, oh, I hacked your system. You know, according to U.S. law, you, you can't do that. And so if you're a white hat hacker, corporations will hire you intentionally to stress test their systems, but it's with their consent. Right. So Key I, difference. Yeah. yeah. Key difference. Yeah. You know, I got to say some of the photos, they look like a scene from Sims. Yeah. From yep. the, the video game. Yep. Yeah, I think I'll pass on it as well. But I do think it brings up a lot of great questions. And hats off to Duck Rabbit, certainly for catching this. We discussed earlier this month the Wall Street Journal's findings that Instagram and Facebook are very aware of the detrimental effects the app can have, specifically on teenage girls' mental health in the form of body comparison. Um, And the article was pretty damning for Instagram head Adam Mosseri. And last week, Mosseri was interviewed on the podcast Recode, which is published by Vox. And it's a really interesting conversation. Um, Host Peter Kafka uh, holds nothing back while que- questioning Mosseri, and I highly recommend um, our listeners listen to that as well. But the one quote that was gaining traction online was Mosseri comparing the potential dangers of Instagram to cars. And he said, quote, we know that more people die than would otherwise because of car accidents, but by and large, cars create way more value in the world than they destroy, Mosseri said. <laughs> okay. Uh, this was this quote was super interesting, and Kafka does a great job pushing back on this point. You know, pointing out that cars are much more regulated by the government than social media currently is. And you know, honestly, like Mosseri handles it with kind of that like boss tech grace. He's really good at having these conversations, and uh, I don't know. I left the conversation, listening to the conversation, like kind of like. Well, he kind of has a point. I don't know. How did, <laughs> how did you feel about it, Alan? <laughs> On the one hand, I think that when people are speaking extemporaneously in interviews, it's almost human nature to try to come up with analogies to explain your position. Mm. And so sometimes the analogies work and sometimes they don't. And especially when you're speaking off the cuff and you're trying to keep track of multiple things in your head, it, it can be difficult. On the other hand, he knows that he's going to be hit with these hard questions. So on the, you know, if, if his PR people didn't prep him properly Mm. and he brought up a bad analogy, then it's kind of on him. Now I understand, you know, this particular quote doesn't have the full context around it, et cetera, et cetera. But 
Yeah, no, I think the larger gist that I get when I hear Mosseri speak or when you hear Zuck speak is to your point, they're really good about explaining why the detrimental things that their products are doing are okay. And they're yeah. and they're thinking about the well-being of everybody. So I don't really yeah. buy it. Hmm. You know, the tech tech grace, as you called it, to me is like <laughs> tech bros thinking that technology will solve every single problem out there. Specifically, yeah. their product will solve every problem out there. And ironically, today, uh, as we're recording on Monday, September 27th, Instagram put out a release again with quoting Adam Mosseri. Uh, they're putting a pause on their product Instagram for kids, which was announced in March and was immediately met back then with pushback. Mosseri said that Instagram for Kids is meant for those between the ages of 10 and 12, not anyone younger. And he said, quote, we started this project to address an important problem seen across our industry. Kids are getting phones younger and younger, misrepresenting their age and downloading apps that are meant for those 13 and older. So he's framing Instagram for Kids as a solution to a social media problem that Instagram and Facebook created. <laughs> <laughs> right. Instead of yeah. saying, you know what, we don't we don't think it's great for kids to be on social media. And so, parents, mm. here's a bunch of information that you should need. You need to know. Try to get them off, off Instagram. It's, you know, to me, he's saying like, well, they're using it anyway. So here's a product for them. That's kind of saying like we know uh, 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 drunk driving is bad and we know that underage kids are doing it. Um, but instead of trying to stop underage drinking and drunk driving, <laughs> we're going to come out with a less alcoholic beer. For the kids to drink. <laughs> right. You know, it's just, you know, speaking about analogies that, that might yeah. not fully work. But they're trying to create more solutions with more unintended consequences rather yeah. than solve the fundamental problem. So I don't know. That's No, that's a super, super good point. And honestly, like we, you know, we talked about, you know, this huge, large issue of kids being trafficked and, and sexually yeah. abused. And, my, you know, my mind just goes there immediately in terms of like Instagram for kids and who's going to infiltrate and hack an app like that and the dangers that you could be putting kids in. Um, and then also, like, why do kids need to be on Instagram? Well, you know, like, why do and then the larger question, why do any of us need to be on Instagram? But like <laughs> specifically, 10, you know, 10 to 12 years old, you don't need to be in taking that many images into your life. Uh, at such a young age so and it, it should ultimately be up for parents to decide if they want their kid under 13 to sign, be able to sign up for the app that's at the parents discretion fine you know whatever but yeah well I'm glad that they put a pause on it even putting aside the CSAM problem the child sexual abuse material problem let's let's pretend that does that doesn't exist or it only impacts a very very small amount of people the thing sure, that we okay. do know from the Wall Street reporting that we talked about last week or the week before is the fact of this social comparison, right? Yeah. Kids, particularly young teenage girls, are using images on Instagram, this platform specifically, to compare themselves socially in terms of like their body type, what they're wearing, social status, mm -hmm. et cetera, in a very detrimental way. And the, and the app and the algorithm are designed to, to get you addicted to this. So to me, to say at 10 and 12, you know, for them to say, oh, we recognize that, you know, nine is too young, but 10 and 12 is fine. 10, <laughs> 10 and 12 is a great year to onboard you onto Instagram for kids. It's crazy talk. Yeah, it is. It, it certainly is. 
I hope it never I hope sees, it never the, light sees the light of day. So yeah. <laughs> here's hoping, here's hoping. Finally, this week, we talked uh, in early August that the New York Public Library was shutting down all public access to their picture collection. The picture collection uh, holds over a million images and library card holders could go in and peruse the archive in person and then even check out images uh, if they wanted to. And they had announced in August that they were going to shut down public access. But this past week, the New York Public Library announced that they found a new space for the collection. It's room 119 for the curious. <laughs> Formerly dedicated to the microfilm and microfiche uh, archives, which I guess people really aren't using those anymore. And plus a lot of them hmm. are digitized. Uh, but room 119 will now house the archive and it will soon reopen to allow continued browsing and circulation of their massive collection. So wow. we still have to make a trip, which means I still yeah. need to get a New York Public Library uh, library card. Oh, I have a Brooklyn one. I wonder if that'll I'm, let I'm me sure in. I'm sure that'll let you in. I don't, I, I, I'll have to look up how to get a library card. I have to say I've never Ooh, held that a is... library card in New York City. <laughs> Alan, that's wild to me. Wow. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, we should definitely go. I think it would, I'm so glad this is a bit of really nice news. I'm so glad that it's not going to be completely shut off to the world. And uh, we should do like a, I was going to say Instagram live after all of that <laughs> crap we just talked on Instagram. We'll, we'll get shushed as we're talking yeah. in the library. But yes, it would be fun. It would be fun to do. True. <laughs> all of the links we've talked about today, you can find on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Hey, since you're listening, why don't you smash that subscribe button, leave us a comment or a rating. You can always tweet at us at Photoshelter. Thanks for listening again this week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.